And so it's my pleasure to call up the president of our congregation, Josh Katz, for some words of welcome to all of us. Shana Toba. Uh, for everybody who's back for the first time, welcome back. And for anybody who's new, welcome in. Um, a couple of years ago, several years ago, we were visiting Jill's family in Boston, and uh, North Andover, really, which is a suburb of Boston. And while we were there, they just get walloped with a snowstorm. 18 inches or so, which I guess if you're from Boston, that's not a big deal. Like around here, the media dines out on that for three days, but there it's no big deal. What was unique about it, though, was it was like maybe the 10th storm that year. And they were literally running out of places to put the snow. There was a pile in her aunt's driveway that was so tall that Lexi, who was like my daughter, who was nine years old, um, climbed to the top and, and dunked the basketball. <laughs> but in Boston, the city especially, I mean, literally, no one knew where to put this stuff. They were taking front end loaders and pushing it out into the harbor because there was no room. And the next morning, I remember watching the mayor of Boston comes out of his house, which is not Gracie Mansion. It's like a house. It's like this little Boston house. And the guy comes out, and, he, and he, I'm going to do the Boston accent wrong, and he's... And he's got, I'm watching this guy, and he's got nothing. He's like, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say. You know, another wicked bad storm. And uh, I told my wife, I, I just, I don't, I don't know. And he just was, there was nothing there. And uh, I definitely feel that. You know, we were, this is not the speech I was planning to give when the summer kicked off. You know, this was going to be a triumphant return, and instead most of the seats are empty, and we're all sitting here with masks, and it's weird, still. So I'm kind of like, oh, wow, I got, home. I got nothing. <laughs> um, and the rabbi started his sermon last night saying he's tired. But... As I thought about it, you know, we, we as you know, we, we've pivoted, we've done things, we've moved on, we've tried it, and, and listen, you guys know, being the mayor of Boston is not nearly as hard as being the president of Temple Nair Tamid. <laughs> For sure. You might have all of Southie complaining to you about the weather, but, you know, try that, put that up against 100 Jews complain, from New Jersey complaining to you about the air conditioning, right? <laughs> And I have something that he doesn't have, which is I have all of you. And we have each other. And we have them. And so we're going to make it work again. We're going to figure out ways back in for everybody. Um, some of you and your neighbors found out this morning that my way back in is driving around at 7 in the morning blowing the shofar. Um, so. I might have created a few anti-Semites this morning in Glen Ridge and Montclair and some very unhappy dogs. Um, but as you know, we're committed to 
making this work, to continue to making a place where you can come in, whether it's physically or virtually, um, with wide programming and a re-emphasis on connection. And um, that's my commitment to you. You know it's your clergy's commitment to you. Um, and it's our professional staff's commitment. So, Shana Tova, welcome back, welcome in, and uh, let's get on with it. Let's do it. Shana Tova. Shana Tova. Shana Tova. I remember the first time I was ever made to answer for Israel. Newly back from living in Jerusalem during my first year in rabbinical school, I ventured out to a friend's birthday party at a nearby bar in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. It was a fun evening since I had gone to college with this particular friend, and I had many common acquaintances from Tufts. One of them, upon realizing that I had just gotten back from Israel, cornered me. With drink in hand, back up against a wall, I was asked to defend any number of accusations, the embargo on Gaza, the military presence in the West Bank, even decisions the Israeli army made during the 1948 War of Independence. It was less a conversation, I would have welcomed that, than a barrage. If you know me, you know that I'm a pretty liberal person. And that outlook includes the way that I see Israel. I was willing to cede her some points, hoping to add nuance to others, and ready to disagree about the remainder. But her goal that night was less to engage than to humiliate, less to dialogue than to conquer. She had no stake in the debate. It actually felt like it was an intellectual exercise for her. I'm a rabbi, so conversations like this is what I signed up for. But my experience isn't innate to my crazy ilk who choose to make Judaism a profession. I bet if I polled our current college students and even our high school students, most would have had the experience that I did at that party. And unlike me, they didn't sign up for it. And unlike me, they hadn't just spent a year learning about the history and the nuance. This past May was a trying time for so many of us, in part because we felt like we lost control of the conversation. I heard from teens and their parents who felt attacked in online forums. They knew the tweets and the sound bites leveled against them were unfair, but they didn't have the know-how or the tools to navigate the conversation. One member, who's very involved in social justice, told me about spaces where she was asked to denounce Israel as a sort of litmus test for involvement, even though their mission in this particular organization didn't involve anything international. Another, who posted prayers for family members running to bomb shelters in Israel, was dismissed outright. They were told that their fears were nothing compared to a mother living in Gaza. The climate that surrounds the discussions of Israel is not new. These conversations are actually a microcosm of a symptom, a general brokenness in our society. We lack the ability to engage in meaningful discourse. People in our society are generally not great at listening. We are strident and we are absolute in our views. We lack patience for subtlety. 
We are crusaders and prophets, zealots and ideologues. In a world that is actually blurry, nuanced, and multivalent, we expect well-packaged, easy answers to questions that defy lucidity. But the world is just not as simple and as clear as we want it to be. Israel is that problem on steroids. There's plenty wrong in Israel, but it is impossible to engage in those things when others cede you no space in the dialogue. This, by the way, is a problem both for defenders and detractors of Israel. When it comes to questions of Israel's security or to the rights of Palestinians, there is usually no middle ground. The question then is what can we do about the toxic environment surrounding the Israel discourse, often on both sides of the aisle? How do we engage in meaningful and real conversations about the complexities on the ground when so many do not have the patience or the open-mindedness to do so? Today, I want to talk about four ways that we can shift the conversation to make it more productive. The first thing is a pragmatic solution. Figure out who to engage and who to ignore. Much of the time, we think that the people that we have to confront after a hateful or a harmful or an unfair thing is posted is the person doing the posting. But that's often a recipe for disaster. Online forums are the least productive places to have meaningful dialogue. And most people who post provocative things want a provocation. That doesn't mean that there's nothing you can do when someone is being hateful or unfair. If someone's abusing a platform, you have the right to question their ability to use it in the first place. Which is more effective? Arguing with someone who posts something inflammatory about Israel on a parenting Facebook group or questioning the place of that comment in the group in the first place, whose mission is everything about local parenting and nothing about international policy. Then instead of engaging the person posting, look to see who their audience is. You likely know many of them. It's these bystanders who are the ones who would benefit from the conversation. Call them up or text them and let them know that you want to talk, that what they saw online is more complicated than the angry soundbite, meme, or cartoon. Be patient and compassionate and hear them out. And if you don't have the answers, then offer to explore the questions together. I'm always happy to recommend books or articles that give nuanced understanding of the conflict. The second way we can help promote complex and sensitive dialogue is to set up expectations and hold people accountable for the language that they use. Since platforms like Twitter only allow 240 characters to get our point across, most people will choose words that pack the greatest punch, even if they are misleading and dangerous. Words like genocide, Nazi, apartheid are useful to these detractors because they are sensational and provocative. But they also carry a history that is harmful to the discourse. Let's take genocide, for example. Let's leave aside the fact for a moment that the term is deeply offensive to us Jews. When it is employed against us, it evokes our painful past as a sort of linguistic cheap shot 
meant to put us on the defensive and prove how we are actually different than our greatest enemy. Instead, let's ask how anyone could look at the events of Israel and think of genocide in the first place. The answer comes in one very broad reading of a definition of genocide by the Convention on the, Pre on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, who first defined the term after World War II. Their definition includes what one would expect, like the presence of mass killings. But it also includes some very opaque phrases. Quote, imposing measures intended to prevent births within a group. Detractors of Israel, especially in academia, unfairly look at Israel's actions since 1948, and they employ an overly broad reading of these phrases. And they explain that any action that destroys not the physical body of the people, but imperils its culture, might be liable for the term genocide. If a group of people, say, are kept in poverty, if they lack access to education, if their lack of health care raises infant mortality, then these might be considered genocidal acts. Now, terms change, I get that. But the most dangerous thing about the approach that I just outlined from academia is that in the popular imagination, genocide still means what most people think it does, mass murder. And when we hear it, we think of Nazis, of Rwanda, of Darfur. Just because a small group of scholars views it differently doesn't mean the rest of us do. Even if someone cites the scholarly debate about the definition of genocide, after they are confronted about using the term, we shouldn't stand for it. It is, to use Jewish language, genivat da'at, deception and dishonest representation. I will talk to anyone about Israel, but I will not engage in conversations where this type of loaded language is present, and you shouldn't either. True academics who are using terms like genocide are trying to say something about, say, the underlying issues within the Palestinian community, be they education inequality, infant mortality, or widespread poverty. And I don't disagree with many of those critiques, though if we engaged in a dialogue, I might disagree on Israel's role in causing and helping to fix each of those things. But it's a lot more productive to talk directly about the problems they mean by the shorthand than to use the provocative coded language. The more specific our conversation can be, the more we can find common ground, and the more fertile and rich will be our dialogue. The third way that we can help promote complex and sensitive dialogue is to make sure that you and your conversation partner are actually having the same conversation. Now, one of the best books written in recent decades on the Arab-Israeli conflict is a book which is called Catch 67 by Mika Goodman. And it was actually a runaway bestseller a few years back in Israel. In it, he speaks about any number of tensions and paradoxes inherent in the Middle East debate, especially among Israelis on the political left and the political right. In one masterful example, he deconstructs a word that we hear often, occupation. I don't have to tell you that this is one of the more loaded terms within the Jewish community. For some, it explains clearly what's happening in places like the West Bank, and for others, it is anathema, and it shuts down conversation. However, 
what many don't realize, and Mika Goodman points this out, is that people mean many things when they use the word occupation. Goodman explains that when the political right in Israel, he's actually writing an internal book to the people of Israel, are talking about the status of the land of the West Bank, they are criticizing the use of the word occupation. They point to the fact that the land traded hands for generations, moving first from the Ottomans to the British to the Jordanians, and then eventually to Israel in 1967, who won it in a defensive war for their survival. How, they ask, can a land be occupied with a history like that? The political left on Israel, parties like Meretz, for example, they don't talk about occupied land. Instead, they talk about occupied people. They speak about the experience of Palestinians who can't freely travel from city to city without checkpoints, or whose houses might be commandeered by soldiers if a suspected terrorist is living next door so that they can do surveillance. They acknowledge that Israel has a right to defend herself and at the same time understand that a people cannot be free and thrive with a military presence in their backyard. The problem with our modern discourse, says Goodman, is that we're having two different conversations. The Israeli left tend to speak about the Palestinian people when they say occupation, and the right makes claims about the land when they say the term. Both may technically be correct, but since they're always talking past one another, they will never actually talk to one another. The conversation becomes circular, even rehearsed. The debate is less rich than ritualistic. When we speak about hard topics, we have to make sure that we are on the same wavelength. The final way that you can help promote complex and sensitive dialogue is to make sure that you understand why you are having the conversation in the first place. Viktor Frankl, quoting Nietzsche, famously wrote, quote, those who have a why to live can bear almost any how. We each come at the why of Israel in our own way. Some of us see Israel as the fulfillment of a 2,000-year-old yearning to come back home. Others see Israel as a safe haven for the Jewish people, should things ever get dangerous for us. Still others see Israel as the hallmark of living Jewish values. Israel's mission is to be the best example of our tradition and ethics, even if they may falter sometimes. Knowing why Israel matters to you will help you navigate the complexities on the ground, the how of Israel. Knowing why you care will help you understand where you should stand firm when challenged and what your non-negotiables are. They will also help you understand what you might compromise. If, for example, you are proud that Israel is a beacon of democracy in the Middle East and that it is a Jewish state, it's going to help you better articulate why a two-state solution is so critical for your identity, since only a two-state solution will preserve both values. If Israel exists to safeguard the Jewish people should threats ever emerge, you are going to want Israel's government to be one that makes sacrifices to save Jews in far-flung places, even if it means doing the unpopular thing 
and attracting worldwide ire. If you start by looking at the complexity first, you're going to be mired in it. The details and nuance will cripple you. But if you start with the question of why does Israel matter to me, to the Jewish people, to the world, this is going to give you guidance to sift through the mess, choose principled sides and positions in any debate, and then be ready for the nuance when you visit it. And I want to help you do this. This past summer, so many people came forward looking for tools on how to best talk about Israel. And I want to make it my mission to give you those. For our students, we spent the summer figuring out how to insert Israel into certain grades in our religious school so we might have a nuanced, age-appropriate conversation. For adults, we will continue to bring in speakers and have programming that we have always done about Israeli politics and culture. But we will add to that three different things. The first, a weekly class on the history of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict taught on Wednesday mornings by me. Number two, a trip to Israel this summer pending COVID and any rising variants. And three, a series of giving circles where you and a group of 10 to 15 other congregants will pool a pot of money together and study nonprofits in Israel, deciding where your money will go. I'm especially excited about this initiative because it's going to force you to ask the foundational question, what about Israel matters to me? Often when someone asks you, tell me about Israel, you jump right into politics. But maybe Israel actually matters to you because of the culture or because of the rich religious texture of society. So when you seek to figure out where you will give your money away, you will direct it to those initiatives. This initiative will help you wrestle with the bigger questions of the Jewish state. When I first wrote to you this past summer about the war in Gaza, a young adult member of our congregation replied to me. She was upset that throughout her life, people had been telling her that Israel is too complicated to talk about. And I was saddened by her email. Israel is complicated, no doubt. And the conversation is made even harder by so many voices on all sides of the debate who are deaf to nuance, zealous in their opinions, absolute in their stances. But sitting out the conversation means that your voice is silenced and that is unacceptable. Within the complexities of Israel dwell some of our most important moral tensions between care for the self and care for the other between justice and mercy, between trust and fear. Roll up your sleeves and get involved. Get engaged. Read everything. Watch nuanced videos online. I'll give you a place to start. Ispeacepossible.com, an amazing set of videos outlining all of the major nuanced issues around whether there could be peace in Israel. Think deeply. Don't run from discussing Israel. Many of us will find ourselves in a position when someone will ask us about Israel. Even if you disagree, even if it's hard, even if what they say may seem unfair, even if it makes your blood boil, engage. The world needs more thoughtful, nuanced people like you. Israel is too complex to not have you 
in the conversation. Shana Torah. And so we're going to move now into the final of our three shofar soundings. We'll rise once again and turn to page 284 for our shofar service. Kia. Shvarim Tirua Tikia Tikia Shvarim Tikia Tikia Trua Kia gedula Sed er shofrotet. 